0: Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Thank You Now What, a podcast about life after service. I'm your host, Matt DeVivo. This show is produced by Ben Murray. On today's episode, we spoke with Glenn Cowan. Glenn is a retired Canadian Army Special Operations Officer and founder of One Nine Investments, where he uses private capital to invest in firms with dual-use technologies, ready to scale from military markets to other industries. As we've branched out of the US again, we're going to spend some time talking about the Canadian military as well as Glenn's experiences serving his transition and what he's been up to lately.
1: So one of my buddies, he got me really into dirt biking and we call it throttle therapy and we get guys together and we go and we ride and we ride really hard and I'm a shitty dirt biker. But what I love about it is it's like I have no ego about it and I just want to learn a new skill. And I
0: found that to be super helpful. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Thanks for listening. Where are you uh, joining us from today? Ottawa?
1: Ottawa, Canada. Yep. Nice. And it is cold here.
0: I would guess so. That's like, uh, like mid Maine, upper Maine, northern. No, go straight north of Syracuse, New York. Yeah. Well, I mean, latitude so... wise.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, latitude-wise, yeah, we're up around northern Maine-ish. But, yeah, straight shot north of kind of Syracuse. Cool. We do our cross-border cross target runs to, to, to stock up on all the good deals.
0: <laughs> target, yeah. Where are you from originally, though?
1: I grew up uh, north of Toronto in a town called Markham and left home kind of early high school. So home to me is kind of cottage country north of Toronto in an area called Muskoka. Hmm which is slowly becoming kind of Canada's Hamptons. And so it's kind of growing at a rate with all the Toronto money and you know while it's still home I'm kind of getting squeezed out of there a little bit. So oh.
0: yeah. Cuz Toronto's yeah. like the Toronto's like the financial center of Canada, like the New York City of Canada, right?
1: It, it is. It's it resembles Chicago. It's a very similar look and feel and vibe to Chicago. Okay. But Toronto Toronto's actually North America's fourth largest city. So behind New York, LA and Chicago, it's the fourth largest city. So I mean it's a it's a big center. And then Ottawa is our DC equivalent. Uh, so heavy heavy government presence. It's the it's the country's capital. It's a smaller city about a million people. Yeah. But we're seeing uh, it's an interesting when I moved here, I moved to Ottawa in 2003 when I did selection for a unit in the military that was based sort of on the fringes of Ottawa, and I kind of stayed here ever since. And when I came to Ottawa, it was like super frumpy government town. Yeah. Uh, and there's been, there's been a lot of cool private industry expansion, and it's, it's actually becoming a pretty fun place to live.
0: Nice, so you spent almost the last like two decades there. Yeah, pretty much,
1: yeah, pretty much. My wife is from Ottawa, she's kind of born and raised here. But yeah, just settled in, and now it's home. So we're not going anywhere. So now we just embrace the minus thirty in the winter.
0: Does it get old when yeah. Americans have to have everything explained to them in terms of it's the Canadian X? Like uh, I just no, I couldn't but... possibly wrap my head around like a just a capital city. Uh, I, I have to relate it to D. <laughs> like we always do that, right? Well, when we talk yeah, to you guys.
1: We do. and uh, Okay, I'll preface all this by saying, look, I love my American brothers, but I also love to to rip on you guys. I think from experience, when someone says, hey, where are you from? And I say Ottawa. And it's like, is that next to Vancouver? Mm. Um, No. Uh, Look, everything north of the United States is just trees and ice. So, you know, I get it. I get it. It's all good. We we can have some fun with it.
0: So, how did you find your way into the military? Was it like a family thing? Did you do university first, or uh, how does that work for you guys?
1: Well, I'll kind of explain our system really briefly, yeah, that'd and be then great. kind of give you give you the context of how it kind of worked in uh, worked in for me. Yeah. So, Canada is a Commonwealth country. We're a British Commonwealth. Our Ministry of Defense our national sort of services are based off the the British regimental system. And so the regimental system is, is basically sort of a series of almost family-oriented militia organizations that get stood up and draw from the regional geography of the surrounding area. And so that's why with sort of the traditional militia or military service, we would have seen a whole host of regiments get stood up and drawing on its local populations. In uh, 1970, I guess, our liberal government sort of disbanded a whole bunch of downsized sort of the army in Canada. Mm. And we went went into sort of a series of three full-time regiments of infantry regiments, which is sort of an infantry regiment supporting a brigade and kind of focused our ground forces around sort of three mechanized brigade groups. And those three infantry regiments form the nucleus of what we have now in our army. But I say that as a long-winded preface to say, Canada has a really healthy system of reserve or militia units that are tied to local areas. And I went to university in, at McGill University, uh, which is in Montreal. And while I was at university, I, I went to McGill to play football. Uh, I actually went there because a girlfriend at the time went there and I chose my school
0: based on a chance. It's not a bad um, school from what I understand.
1: No, it's an amazing school and it draws a ton of American because it does have this sort of Ivy league reputation yeah. at, at sort of like a 10th the price of Connecticut type Ivy league schools. It's an English institution in the heart of Montreal, which is in Quebec, which is a French, mm-hmm. a French uh, province. And I didn't end up playing football just because I didn't really want my time to be, I didn't want my university educational experience to be defined by like practice and 40 hours of film a week. And, and look, let's face it, it's, this, it's Canadian football, it's three down football, 110 yard field, huge end zones. It's an amazingly fun variant of football to watch, but it's, you know, it's, we're not going anywhere it wasn't leading me anywhere outside of, you know, a fun sort of hobby to do while I was at school. And that's where I wanted to replace that component of football with another kind of contact sport. And so I'm like, you know, I'm going to join the Army. And literally in 1997, there was an ice storm in eastern Canada and eastern United States that kind of crippled the eastern seaboard. And the Army in Canada got deployed because life shut down. And it was then, you know, that I think – I think we were like smoking weed in my dorm room and I'm like, I'm going to go join the army and literally walked down to uh, a regiment, a militia regiment in the heart of Montreal that was called the black watch. And the black watch was a Scottish Highland regiment that was affiliated with the black watch Royal Highland regiment in England. And I knocked on the door and I said, I want to join the army. And I, I, joined the Army as a part-time Army officer, put myself through school, and did our sort of basic infantry training during the summer. And in Canada, we would align our summer training with Royal Military College, which is our variant of West Point. Mm -hmm. And so I did all my training with, like my tactical training with like the West Point guys or the RMC guys, but then still got to live and work and party in Montreal and didn't have to go to, to military college. So I kind of saw that as the best of both worlds. And I fell in love with the military. It was like being a part of a fraternity that wasn't a fraternity. We got paid a great, a great social life that complemented university and literally fell in love with it. And sort of towards the end of university, I said, I'm gonna make a component transfer. And I did a component transfer to the regular forces. I said, I wanna make a career in the military. And I joined an infantry regiment called the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. And the, that's a Western Canadian regiment. I wanted to get out of the East and go out West to Alberta, which is kind of like the Canadian Texas, and joined and joined the Patricias, otherwise known as the Dirty Patricias, and Cowboy <laughs> Boots and Dip. And, nice. um, and I got posted to the 3rd Battalion, which is a light infantry parachute battalion, on September 10th, 2001. How how cliche is that? And th- and 3 PPCLI, or the 3rd Battalion as it's known, at that point in time was tagged as Canada's high readiness to support NATO uh, sort of NATO uh, operations. And under the NATO charter, any attack on a NATO ally is an attack on Canada. And we literally, on day one of showing up for my first platoon in an infantry battalion, we got tagged with supporting the U.S. in the the global war on terror, and uh, that started a very rapid uh, pre-deployment training and sort of right into right into the fray, kind of in the in the literally in the weeks and months following
0: 9/11. Wow, that's crazy with the timing. But also, I want to just kind of something that gets me. As a really cool aspect of what you just discussed was the self governance of the units in your military like you went to the unit knocked on their door joined up and then you shopped for an active unit after that like with us it's you all go into this one gigantic funnel and then get spit out because very centralized but that's incredibly cool.
1: It's very cool. And that's that's very much the nature of that British regimental system. And so, you know, in the times of a lot of these units supported the Boer War or the South African War at the turn of the century, and then these regiments would have recruited very heavily from the local population as conscription happened and we started standing up massive support to the First and Second World War. And so these regiments... They're probably only measure on paper, maybe like a company's worth of guys and gals that show up sort of part-time traditional sort of primary reserve type soldiering. But the regiments themselves are steeped in really impressive history. And they more often than not draw some sort of a lineage to their British counterpart regiment, which is equally steeped in history. So, I mean, I was part of, of the Black Watch Royal Highland Regiment of Canada, which is an incredibly proud Highland regiment. So, I mean, not only did I knock on the door of the local garrison, but we would, be in, we would parade in full Highland dress. At the First World War, that regiment raised three battalions that fought for four years in France and literally bagpiped their way into battle. Like, it's pretty badass. Every regimental organization very much becomes like its own sort of family unit. And it's a really cool way to do it that that probably wouldn't work in the U.S. just based on the sheer size and scale of your military. Mm -hmm. But in Canada, Canada we have a, a relatively very small professional military. And so the disbandment of a lot of these regiments that happened or the downsizing of them that happened in 1970... Um, afforded the fact that there's still garrisons all over the country, uh, every town kind of has its local militia unit, and it you know the, you know has sort of the cid- citizen soldiers of a traditional militia, yeah. um, and and it it adds I think uh, an incredible richness to our military heritage. Uh, it's pretty it's pretty wild. Like the Black Watch, as an example, even in Canada, uh, has a battle honor from the Fenian raids when we were battling sort of the Fenian incursions from, like, Massachusetts north of the border in, like, the 1700s. And you'll pr- I got to fact check my dates and, and whatnot. But, like, I mean, these are some – I mean, the history goes back quite a quite a while. It's pretty cool.
0: Yeah. It's always great to see a military unit that's had its uh, history very well maintained, and you can kind of travel back through it.
1: Totally. And, and again, with, uh, with my main regiment, the PPCLI, Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry – I mean, that, that organization has another really cool lineage to it. It was privately funded in 1914 by one of its company commanders. So this, this guy, you know, a guy named uh, Hamilton Galt, super rich sort of aristocrat that wanted to get in the fight and said, fuck it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fund my own regiment. And he basically funded three battalions. And, you know, we were the first uh, first in the field in 1914. And we actually lost about ninety five percent of the originals at the Battle of Friesenberg in uh, in nineteen fourteen. Like the regiment got decimated. And it was a, it's a cool like uh, it's a cool lesson in humility, because this guy that funded the battalion was like, "No, nah, I don't want to be the CO. I'm gonna I'm just gonna be a major and keep my rank as major, and I'll bring in I'll bring in a, a CO to command the regiment, and I'll just kind of stick with what I know, even though he kind of he kind of out of pocket." Fronted the the majority of the cost to raise the regiment.
0: Yeah, probably later yeah. later in the episode, I might ask if you ever told that story to a founder.
1: Yeah, no, <laughs> I, I I haven't, no? I haven't, and you know it's it's funny. I just thought of it right now as uh, kind of diving into the history. And for any Patricias that might listen, I'm sorry if I'm getting dates or things wrong. I was never. Never very good in the Army. That's why I went to Special Forces, because it was like, <laughs> loved loved, uh, loved soldiering, hated the military. So went to the entrepreneurial area of the military.
0: Yeah, I so, can relate to you there. Yeah. So yeah. I had planned to ask how 9-11 impacted you in the Canadian military. You already told us about that. You said, you know, an attack on our allies is an attack on us. So can you... Well, I'll will dive a bit deeper yeah. if uh, yeah,
1: like I, I mean it it does have a really interesting sequence of events that happened to kind of get to where I am now and some events that happened that were very sort of life altering. The first is obviously nine eleven, and I was as green around the ears as they come from a platoon commander going out to my first my first platoon command in uh, in a pretty tough battalion. I mean the third battalion is no joke. I mean it's hardened you know, paratroopers from, you know, northern Canada, like cutting wood and mining and hunting and shooting big game animals. And, you know, it's a, it's a tough group. And so showing up there is this like, I don't know, probably pretty cocky kid thinking I know everything. I was put in my place pretty quickly with the senior NCOs that were, uh, that were in this battalion. But we deployed as part of, I might get this wrong, for Canada at the time, we carved out our battalion and actually attached our battalion to the, the 101st Airborne, 1st of the 187th Brigade Combat Teams. And so we ended up becoming like the 4th Light Infantry Battalion as part of a 101st Brigade Group. And so we kind of started the fact that we had sort of two dueling chains of command right very early on in the campaign. We had a national command chain up to the Canadian decision makers, but we were also sort of under direct operational control of an American brigade commander. And with it came the full power of the U.S. Army, which I got to tell you, man, is, is something you guys probably take for granted, but it's a pretty awesome beast. Seeing sort of, you know, how a hundred and first Airborne would deploy a brigade. It was pretty impressive, and we went over and we were on the first lift into Kandahar, with the exception of some of the special operators that had gotten in there. And I think I hit the ground in January of two thousand and two. So, literally, if not the first one of the first conventional organizations into Afghanistan, and it was it was a it was a pretty boring time. It was a lot of ups and downs. We were still like. You know, you go back now, like, we were dug into the ground where there's, like, a Tim Hortons and a Pizza Hut now. Like, it was, it was pretty austere, complete sort of light discipline, blackout, you know, burning your own feces kind of living. Mm. Sort of looked like an old-school sort of Vietnam-era fob. And, you know, we just did conventional infantry tasks. The coolest and biggest operation we were a part of was op anaconda which was in the shai Kot valley yeah. so we were right there as a conventional unit we were kind of tasked with sort of this the the tail end of that operation kind of just doing advance to contact through the valley and mopping up any remnants of uh, of taliban and al-qaeda that were in the valley uh and it was it was a, a really awesome experience we didn't see too much combat a couple of sort of layback guys that uh that got the good news. But other than that, it was, you know, yeah. a, a, big, a big walk in the mountains. And then the most transformational thing that happened for me, because uh, I always knew I wanted to be in a special forces organization, we suffered an incident where an American F-16 dropped a 500-pound GBU on one of our companies, and it killed four of our guys. And long story short, we were going out to zero some weapons and just do some training out at Tarnak Farm, which is just south of Kandahar Airfield. And, you know, that was my range that night. And so, you know, we were just getting out to go do some routine training. And one of the other companies, our parachute company, got a warning order to support a special operations group on the Pakistani border the following morning. And so they kind of came to me late late in the day there uh, and said, hey, I need your range that night. Look, we got to go out and we got to zero our guns. Do you mind if you take our range, which is tomorrow, and we'll take your range? I said, yeah, no problem, easy day, like you know. And so I swapped with another company, and those guys went out and they got hit with a 500-pound GBU, Jesus. and it dec- it pretty much decimated one platoon with four fatalities. And they were they were those were our first Canadian fatalities since the Korean War in a active combat zone. And it was a a massive story. But what ended up happening was their task ended up coming to me. And so I got on the aircraft the next morning, and I flew with my platoon and sort of a scaled-down company to do a security task for some U.S. Tier 1 folks, a British Tier 1 crew, and another government agency, all American. And so if I thought Kandahar was an austere environment, this was super austere. And we integrated as a conventional security force, supporting the enablement of this tier one U.S. force to allow them to conduct their operations. And it was in such an environment that there was no operational security, just given proximity and and size of the compound. So we, we saw everything that was happening. We got involved in some of the mission planning. We supported where we could and sort of, you know, QRF in extremis to help to help these guys out. And it was such an eye opener. And it was like, look, if I'm going to spend the rest of my career fighting a war, I'm going to do it with my hands in my pockets wearing flip-flops because this is, this is where it's at. And um, I kind of fell in love with what I thought special operations was it was then validated sort of watching what at this point in time was like you know almost like a like mythical status of these kinds of warriors and so I came home after that tour and was like immediately you know put in for selection and uh and kind of the rest is history
0: so how when you come back from that how do you actually apply to to go into canadian special forces like is it just is there someone always there to pick up the phone
1: at that point in time uh so that was 2003 the community in canada was really small Hmm. and and there's kind of one one main tactical unit that you would do selection for and that was kind of our tier one equivalent to sort of working with JSOC organizations in the U.S. as an example. And so, you know, there was kind of an annual selection process. They would publish in sort of Canadian Forces standing orders when these selections would happen. You had to hit a certain criteria, and it was a four-phase process. And that's where I want to be very careful because that's one of the things that we hold very sort of near and dear to our hearts is our selection process and and I, I think I'll just leave it at that. Now in 2006 that changed because we actually stood up uh, Canadian SOCOM or or what we call CANSOF, CANSOFCOM uh, and with that we had a higher headquarters we had an aviation squadron and we stood up based on the combat that we were sustaining in Afghanistan we stood up another uh, another unit that's a direct action unit called Canadian Special Operations Regiment and there's some amazing operators and guys that work in that unit. So if again, if anyone's listening, I won't I won't bash the unit too hard. But uh, I would describe that organization, and and I think some guys would probably butcher me for saying it, is it's kind of like a mix between like an ODA and a Ranger battalion, if that makes sense. Canada's we, our our forces are very small, and so you know we got really good at sort of filling the full spectrum of mission profiles with sort of set units. Like in my unit, we did everything from domestic counterterrorism, sort of a mission set that would be akin to uh, FBI, HRT. We did all the maritime CT. So kind of a, you know, more of a a Navy maritime type mindset and mission set. And then we did all sort of the, the ground oriented direct action surveillance, special reconnaissance and that kind of stuff. So kind of didn't have the luxury of having focus, we got we had to become very sort of generalist. And then we also stood up a, a pretty high-end national mission unit that focuses exclusively on chemical uh, and biological warfare. So all that, again, is kind of a long-winded way to say Soldiers in Canada now have options for how they want to apply into different sort of specialties and areas of expertise within the Special Forces community. But when I did it, it was very much one unit, one organization that was a Special Forces community, and, and that's, I mean, let make no bones about it, it's the first among equals in Canada. Like, it shoots, moves, and communicates with your folks, our British counterparts, like, interchangeable completely.
0: Yeah, I've loved working with... Uh... Canadian soldiers. And you guys taught me how to ice climb. You guys made me way better at AT skiing. Yeah. And uh, what's the, what's like the craziest environmental training that you've done since, (sighs) since you, your country stretches to the North pole.
1: I think the craziest mission
0: profile that we
1: would do is MCT or maritime counterterrorism. It's just an unforgiving bitch of an environment. It, It is freezing cold We would do, you know, we're operating in coastlines. You know, I I got, I ended up getting injured on a, on a rehearsal we did. And we were literally like doing a hook and climb out near the fucking Titanic. Like, I'm not kidding. Like Hmm. it was cold. Hook and climb
0: for people who don't know is like getting from a smaller boat onto a bigger boat on some crazy little like wire ladder that's clanging against the side of the bigger boat with you on it.
1: Yeah, I'm not. I'm 260 pounds without my kid on. I'm I'm not a graceful climber. Um, so, uh, but then uh, I, I, again, in the conventional army, uh, we would do some just, just some hardcore Arctic patrolling, and it's a completely different way of, of living. Uh, I mean, it's you know the environment becomes a hazard. Uh, I did a, was doing a three man reconnaissance patrol just for a training evolution while I was in the conventional army. And we were sort of way Northern Alberta, like up close to the Arctic circle. And we went through the ice and we were, we were hooped like we went down hard with hypothermia and you know, the, the environment became a very, a very real factor, but yeah, I'd say just being cold and it's a little bit like getting kicked in the nuts. Like there's no amount of training that will prepare you for it. It's going to suck you can't get practice getting kicked in the nuts and have it not hurt
0: so yeah Mm. so you hit this point in the canadian forces in 2006 where you're trying to add a little more structure and perhaps more breadth Did, did you have any influence on that were you were you at the point in your career where you were able to have any influence on that or what were some of the things that you saw that were happening that you agreed with or maybe thought could have done better
1: so to answer your question no I didn't have any influence in it directly but the commanders like we were such a small community I'll just speak from the officer community we were consulted by the the senior officers the unit commanders uh, the guys that ultimately went on to be two and three star generals you know who commanded throughout the organizations they did solicit some feedback. We were very much a bottom up organization. And so where time and opportunity presented itself, we would be involved in at least getting our say in terms of voicing opinion. Now that opinion treated what it's worth, you know, at first I disagreed with it because it was a little bit of, there was some worry that someone's going to kind of like invade on your turf uh, when this new regiment, the Special Operations Regiment, was stood up, it was populated with some of the senior officers and senior enlisted from my my unit. And so there was a little bit in the early days of, of a little bit of a maybe a lack of clarity behind what they should be doing, what their identity should be, how sort of culture kind of takes root. And the whole organization wasn't very mature. Canadian Special Operations didn't really become a, a stood-up entity as part of the military until 1993. So it was relatively an immature institution at the time that this change was happening, yet we kind of thought, you know, there's no room for more guys on the block. But in actual fact, as I think the really positive was it forced a professionalization and a maturing of a, a world-class small but world class special operations capability as opposed to just a, a unit that's really good at CQB and doing direct action missions it created a structure for us as an organization to force employ our own mission sets which in canada was actually pretty positive cuz our army doesn't force employ missions like in the us you guys have your component commanders and you know there's force generated missions that go to the component commander or the combatant commander i might get that wrong and that combatant commander fights those force-generated units. We didn't really have that in Canada. We kind of had, like, one combatant command, and and it was responsible for all operations, conventional or special. And then with with the professionalization and the maturing of CANSOF in 2006, it allowed the organization to be its own sort of force employer where it made sense. It sort of put us on par with, like... You know, our general at the time was like a one-star, but equivalent to like a JSOC and a SOCOM type capability. And so it allowed us to integrate and work at at that level and then internally to our country sort of put a one-star general on on sort of equal footing with like his three-star environment commanders, like Army commander, Navy commander, Air Force commander, Mm. and
0: stuff like that. In the years following... 9-11 or or the years throughout which the the global war on terror developed how did people perceive the military or soldiers or how did recruiting change or i like we honestly in america we glorify the hell out of it um yeah for a lot of people it's you know a blue collar job for a lot of people they they're putting a lot on the line every single night it's hard to discern but we've definitely glamorized it here We enjoy the patriotism, but after 2001, it's like it blew up, right?
1: Yeah, it was a really positive event for giving our military the true identity of what a military is. What I mean by that is like Canada has a very proud reputation of supporting the United Nations and being a peacekeeping army. And you would listen to, I would say, ill-informed people in Canada talk about, oh, we're peacekeepers, and We're like fuck that. We are war fighters, and a war fighter also can peace keep. But make no mistake about it, we're not a peacekeeper. That's not a that's not an occupation. Yeah. You know, I'm an I'm an infantry soldier. My job is to close with and destroy the enemy, and I can do that wearing a blue beret, or I can do that on, in a combat operation. Other organizations can't peace keep. Like you need you need some badass guys. With a, with a tinted dip in their mouth and a bayonet on the end of their rifle to go into some of these environments and stare down some pretty bad people and kind of draw a line in the sand and say, not on my watch. You know what I mean? Right. And we we were really good at that. But I would say, like, collectively, our military kind of got tagged with internal to our own country being up this, like, peacekeeping force, which is complete bullshit. You know, there's a lot of proud history to our forces through the missions we did, peacekeeping, but nine eleven afforded us the opportunity to take the gloves off. And it showcased, I think, to the people of Canada, a very unifying support to the military. Canada has its own faults with the government, not unlike some of the things you guys are going through with, you know, divisive politics and right and left. And, you know, it was our liberal government, which is... Right now, our current government, which is pretty left wing, non-military, it was the liberal government that put us to war, uh, which is pretty, I think it says something mm-hmm. you know, for where we were at. It would be like the ultimate left wing Democrat sort of being the one saying, let's go to war and let's, let's cut our battalions to the 101st Airborne and go and smoke some dudes. And when we started receiving casualties, it really, really unified the country. And it kind of took the politicization of the war out of it, in my opinion. We got massive funding. We got great kit and equipment. We stayed small and sort of nimble and and sort of true to to sort of the the values of the Canadian military, but we went hard to war. I mean, we we went into the, the boonies in Kandahar and set up these fobs and you know, squared off against the Taliban and the Al-Qaeda in very early days when they would amass 120, 150 Taliban fighters on a platoon. And our guys performed admirably. And, you know, it it really got us back to our roots, I think, of a military that came of age through war. I mean, you know, you look at the, the history of the Canadian forces in the First World War, the Second World War, the Korean War, never one to back down from a fight. We were always there with our allies, many times leading the charge on a lot of these operations. And, And Afghanistan and the global war on terror really highlighted and showcased that. One of the things we didn't do was go to Iraq with you guys. And that was, I would say, a very controversial and politicized decision around the time that you guys invaded in 2004. I was with a special operations unit at that point in time, and I thought it was the wrong decision. Good, bad, or indifferent when your best friend gets in a fight, you don't say no to backing him up, even if he's being an idiot at the bar and running his mouth. <laughs> like, And while what might have ended up being the right decision strategically to not go to Iraq from a tactical perspective, it was a tough pill to swallow when all of our counterparts that we we're fighting alongside in Afghanistan sort of start shifting gears and, and pouring troops into Baghdad and, and whatnot. Yeah, I didn't agree with it at the time, but I think it was probably the right move.
0: Did you guys uh, ever get a chance to go to Iraq like post-invasion or uh, later on?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I won't say too much about it, but we uh, Canada has a pretty pretty good complement in the counter-ISIS fight. Okay. So there's a lot, and I'll just I'll just leave it at that. But yeah, we have we have a pretty active presence with the counter-ISIS fight.
0: So do people in Canada say thank you for your service? I mean every everyone's uh, polite, so I would imagine so.
1: Yeah, we've got a uh, we've got a really powerful Remembrance Day week. We call it Remembrance Day, November eleventh, yeah. our armistice. Yeah. Um I've got a lot of friends from the US that come up to our Remembrance Day ceremony. It's a pretty powerful I think we we do it right. We remember our sacrifices of our veterans. I think we do a very good job of doing it. When we had fatalities in Afghanistan, they would all land at Trenton Air Force Base, which is about two hours east of Toronto, and sort of the the processing of our deceased soldiers was done in Toronto. And so the the highway, which is kind of you know our major interstate from Trenton to Toronto, is about a two hour uh, two hour drive, and it it has been. You know, dubbed the Highway of Heroes. When there was a fatality and a procession from the air, from sort of the, the, the offloading of the ramp ceremonies in Trenton, traffic on both sides of the highway would stop, pull off to the side of the road, everyone would get out of their car. Every overpass was lined with thousands of people fire trucks, police, first responders. Like, the, it was a big deal. And I think we did that really well in honoring the sacrifices. So to answer your question, yeah, we do get a lot of thank you for your service. My response is always, I thank them back. You're the one that sent us to war, which is ultimately in a democracy up to the people of who they elect to make the decisions. And it's, it's sort of a decision of the people. And not that I'm a warmonger, but it was a really positive experience nationally I think it was a positive experience uh, I think for our military it was a very positive experience notwithstanding the sacrifice and the, and the men and women that we lost, that's part of the business yeah. and it's what happens when countries go to war but it's also why we have armed forces, to be able to exercise our politics by other means which is essentially what the military is it's an extension of, of politics by other means and so I always kind of answer back, and I guess it might sound a little flippant, but I always kind of say, well, thank you for for trusting us to go to war. Like thank you for empowering us with the trust of the country to be able to do that. because I mean it was it was defining. The best moments of my life occurred in combat and occurred on deployments. The closest friendships I have are because of those experiences multinational friendships, you know, connecting with guys like yourself and, and, you know, hundreds of others in the U S and the UK and just my own community here. Uh, I met my wife on a mission, like, like everything is the best experiences of my life were because of, you know, deploying in some of these environments.
0: Was she, uh, was she a service member too?
1: No, she's in, uh, uh, the Royal Canadian Mount of police. So our federal police force. Oh,
0: cool. Yeah, what?
1: I violated the no fraternization policy. So.
0: <laughs> All right. We'll let it slide. You guys did integrate women the way before we did, though, too, right?
1: Yeah, with huge success. Yeah. Huge success. So, uh, yeah, I mean, Canada, Canada's got a really good track record of being really forward-leaning and socially liberal. And, you know, 50% of your talent pool is women. You know, not integrating that capability and and their intellect and their ability to do the job is like kind of tying one one hand behind your back. And so I don't know the date that we actually sort of integrated, but it wasn't like a stepped process, I don't think. I think it was, you know, sort of under our um, Charter of Human Rights and Freedoms, which is kind of a part of our kind of constitutional sort of uh, framework for how things happen in Canada – we had these equal rights. And so it wasn't, I don't think, I might be wrong, but I don't think it was like, well, they can do, you know, logistics jobs, but not combat arms jobs. I think once the decision was made that, like, every trade is open, I think it was just every trade is open regardless of gender to include special operations. I don't know, I've served with many women in... Uh, conventional contexts. I've served with many women in special operations context and we've integrated that I think very seamlessly.
0: Did you ever listen to maybe any of your like American counterparts complaining about it and you were like, hey, look, here's here's the deal. You should be more welcoming yeah. of this.
1: Yeah, I mean, yes and no. Uh because I think the discussion would get marred by gender. And specifically in the special operations community, I don't think gender had anything to do with it. Uh, I think it—I think it's culture and fit. And, and I know a lot of women that fit the culture better than a lot of the guys did. And so I think it was less about maybe gender roles. But again, and without getting into too much sort of operational detail about where women add a significant amount of value, just from profile and and whatnot, as a, yeah. you know. Having having a diverse force, whether it's multilingual language speakers, people of different ethnicities, people of different gender, y- you only enhance, I think, your operational effectiveness by being able to have different capabilities and different tool sets to put towards a problem. And, you know, a bunch of white dudes with death before dishonor tattoos and dips in their mouth, like... You don't really blend, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, you yeah. kind of
0: you're fit for purpose, but for a very defined purpose. And,
1: and I'll give you I'll give you a great example in the conventional forces. In 2006, my old regiment I, I was now with the special operations. I think it was 2006, 2005, 2006. One of the infantry companies, sort of a mechanized company group, we actually suffered our first female fatality in combat. And and she was a captain named Nicola Goddard. She was a FUFAC, forward-controlling party, sort of supporting the, the company commander with, you know, calling artillery and airstrikes. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, she got hit with an RPG and she was killed. And I think people thought the ramifications of the perception of a woman being killed would have different impact than a man being killed. But I think to the credit of our military and the force and the people can, it was just, we just lost another soldier and it was tragic, but you talk to any of the guys in her company and she was an incredibly, incredibly effective foo fact controller that integrated well with the company and did her job with extreme precision, you know, and it was sort of a tragic loss and, and again, because the military is small, so everyone kind of knew her. But it didn't seem to have this like, big blowback that people kind of thought. It was just we lost another soldier, whether it's a man or a woman. It was, you know, it was as tragic as the next day when we had an, an IED blow up a vehicle. It was just we lost more soldiers. So it, it worked really well. And, I mean, we have a, a female commanding general commanding our Middle Eastern mission now. We have female battalion commanders, females integrated in our special operations community. It works. It's
0: great. Not to fast forward too quickly, but we need to start talking about transition from the military and then, and okay. then, and then what happens <laughs> after. Hey, this is Matt with some quick show updates. One, our show got its first t-shirt. Uh, That's right, it's a very cool design from our friend Chris Lang, uh, who runs a shop called Southern Northern, so huge thanks to Chris. If you want to see the new t-shirt, you can check out our website at thankyounowwhat.com and click the merchandise link. Uh, We also posted some photos to our Instagram so you can check it out there. The shirts are done by Cotton Bureau, which for anybody looking to do this kind of thing, is a print and ship on demand service. Uh, So you never have to carry inventory, which is great since we're hosting a podcast and not running a t-shirt shop. The shirts are great quality and very comfortable. I have a few others from Cotton Bureau myself I've got my Thank You Now what shirt on the way. Anyway, head over to our website or our Instagram for a look at the new design and pick one up. As you know, giving is very important to us on this show, and we closed out the year by giving 52% of all your contributions back to charities that support and honor veterans. For every dollar you gave, 48 cents went to share in the show's cost of production, and 52 cents went to a greater cause, so we want to thank you for being a part of it. If you want to continue sharing in the cost of doing business, there are two ways to contribute, Patreon and PayPal, and you can find links to both on our website. We'll have more about Patreon in the second segment. You can also contribute directly to the nonprofits we've featured on the show by hitting up the website and clicking the nonprofits page. As always, you can find us on Twitter or Instagram at Thank You Now What, or get in touch directly through the website form or by emailing thankyounowwhat at gmail.com. Thanks, and let's get back to the show. So, at what point do you start thinking that? Maybe it's time to get on to something else or leave the military, or I think that because we we did do a little research, but I think you mentioned that you had medically retired, but you called it a blessing in disguise. Can you yeah. explain that a little more?
1: Yeah, for sure. I never saw myself as a career soldier I mean so so much so that the the gentleman who's commanding he's a two star now commanding Kansov. Uh, is a friend of mine. And he was my company commander in in the battalion when I put my application in. And he kind of said, why do you want to go to special forces? And my answer, <laughs> my answer was, because I want to get some credibility and experience so that I can get out in about eight years and start my own private military company. And he just looked at me and he said, never say that again. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and so I, I had kind of always had an entrepreneurial sort of bug. And i Probably if 9 11 didn't happen and if we didn't go to war the way we did, I probably would have left the military a lot earlier. And I started investing my money pretty effectively in 2007. When we went overseas, you know, we got some really good uh, danger and hardship. We got some specialist pay. And while we were deployed, we were tax free. So we would come home from sort of six or nine month deployments with pretty good disposable cash. And I put that to work in public markets. And I also backed one of my best friend's companies that was a startup in the commercial real estate space. And it was a debt investment into a company called Storage Capital, which is now one of Canada's sort of leading alternate sort of lenders into commercial storage uh, and self-storage as an asset class in particular. Mm. And he, he became uh, a bit of a business mentor of mine. And I loved investing and he was out building companies and investing and building real estate portfolios and really exposing himself to sort of the top tiered investors in in that kind of asset class. And we ended up doing a deal while I was still serving. I was now a squadron commander at the time and we did a deal that I kind of brokered and I won't get too into the specifics, but it was about a $10 million deal that yielded a pretty significant coupon and in dealing with this coupon it was coming into my name personally and I said I need a better I need a better structure for sort of channeling investment income and that's when I incorporated one9 uh, which is my company now one9 investments and so I incorporated that in 2013. And it was a very passive investment company, but I, and I always knew it would m- morph into something else. And so I started planning the kind of the concept of an investment fund while I was still serving, but didn't really know what it was going to do. And then in 2015, I got hurt on a mission workup for a rehearsal. I mentioned I'm not a very good climber, and gravity wins every time. And it fucked me up pretty good. But it was also, I knew at that point in time it was time to leave. Uh, I was kind of coming to a decision point where I was near the end of my squadron command time, and the decision was, you're going to get promoted colonel, we're going to send you on sort of the command and staff college, and then you're going to go to do French training for a year because we're a bilingual country and you have to speak French, which, again, I don't agree with how we do our French language or our second language profiling in Canada, but that's another story. Uh, You're going to take a big pay cut and you're going to get rewarded with a staff job in a headquarters downtown. And I was like, but I'm still got a lot to give to the community. And it it just wasn't aligning with the direction. And to me, it became a natural decision point. And at that point in time, I kind of would have gone the institutional route and just continued to progress as a senior officer or that was time to kind of say, look, I've done everything I want to do. I want to give back, but I didn't want to just cut and run. So I kind of, you know, worked with my boss and said, look, I'll take a job where I do recruiting and selection for a year. I'll run an operator course and I'll replace myself with new guys. I'll backfill and train the next generation of of guys. And then I can kind of comfortably hand on heart, say I've you know given back but i I left in 2016 and that's when that's when you and I met uh, I didn't quite have the balls to start my own venture and I didn't quite have the vision for what I wanted it to look like uh, and that's when you and I connected in New York, which was an interesting year. I learned a ton sort of as that being my first sort of foray into the into the private sector and ended up staying in that American company for about a year, and then just you know decided to go in a different direction. It's funny, it was actually while we were there, I went into Saudi Arabia trying to sort of develop new lines of, of business for that company, and we went in with a Canadian company that had just landed a big military contract with their special forces. And so we went in, I ended up doing a demo for that company and used that as a bit of a, a reason for being in Saudi to kind of pitch some of the stuff that we were working on. Um, and that was, that's what I had like the aha moment for the one nine and the venture fund to go back to your question about the, the blessing in disguise, I was ready to move on. I did not want to be a senior officer. I did not want to be an institutional army guy. I had a plan in place that I'd been working on and I pulled the trigger and, and got out and I used, I used the injury as a bit of a crutch to kind of say, like, this sucks. I can't really be too operational right now, given the damage that I'd done, but it's time to move on.
0: When you say that you didn't have the balls to do it, you're talking about, (laughs) and don't let me put words in your mouth, but you came from a very steady employment, as we all do, where it's like, from the time I was 18, I had a paycheck on the 1st and the 15th that was rock solid. And then with anything entrepreneurial, you have to be willing to give up the steady paycheck and take that risk. But I mean, you've got family to think about, you've got how many things to put on your plate at once. And then there's something I try to tell people too, just about transition in general. And I'm like, you know, if you are in from the military, the first thing is probably not the thing.
1: hundred percent agree. Yeah. I'd say the first two or three things probably aren't the thing. Yeah. Um, and so the company that you and I worked for, it paid well. It was in an, in, in an area that I was very comfortable in in the kind of the security space. The team seemed great. It was a, you know a good sort of from a culture perspective. it didn't seem like a, a huge deviation from being sort of part of a small team that you know is working closely together and doing cool stuff. Mm-hmm. So there was a perceived cultural alignment. Uh, the pay was right, interesting work. And it, yeah, it afforded me, again, a year of seeing someone else run a company. And I was able to kind of look at some really good things that happened in a different entrepreneurial venture. I saw some things I didn't like. Uh, I was able to learn from some of my own mistakes that that I made. And then ultimately, you know, had th- arguably had things worked I think what was happening there could have been pretty epic, but it's uh, you know it, there was reasons to move on, and I kind of did the same thing with another company that was another um, a good friend of mine was was integrating drone systems into the Saudi Special Forces, uh, and so we went over to Saudi Arabia and he needed some help. He's like, "Can you do a demo?" I'm like, "Yeah, man, doing demos. Like I could do demos with my eyes closed." So we landed a big contract and sort of had this eureka moment of. Getting in the security space and trying to sell stuff uh, is not the way to, I think, you know, create wealth in the world. Uh, I want to buy the companies that are selling these hundred million dollar contracts to these different militaries. And it was while I was there, the military had bought these drone systems. And while we were there, we sold drone systems to Saudi Aramco, which was the largest company in the world or is the largest company in the world. And the scale, the disproportionate scale that the biggest private sector company was buying compared to the military was astronomical. For like every hundred systems the military would buy, these guys would buy like one. And there's a big inflection point of the military being way ahead of the private sector in terms of innovation and so we're seeing that we see that everywhere we look gps robotics drones even the internet you know lessons that we're learning from developing technology for combat that then sort of finds its way into the civilian marketplace and so i've built a fund where i'm using my access and my knowledge of how the end users build deploy and innovate tech and i have an understanding of what problems they're solving and then I look to buy those companies before the rest of the world and the private sector even kind of knows they're a problem. And I've, I've got a pretty interesting track record, and I don't know if it's just dumb luck or if I've actually stumbled on something that's that's working. Uh, probably a little bit of both. So, yeah, that was kind of the genesis of, of how one nine kind of took its own kind of form because in those two years after transition, I didn't really even know what I wanted my own company to do. So it's kind of hard to start a company when you didn't even really know what to do with it. Yeah. And so I think those early examples of working someone else's vision are critically important. Now on the back end, though, now that I'm hiring and scaling my own company, I don't hire guys that are directly coming out of the military. I'm like, because <laughs> I, <don't know." laughs> I know it's not for you. Yeah. I know if, it's, if this is your first job, I can guarantee you that this is not for you. So go and do something different and circle back in 18 months and then, you know, we'll see, we'll see it. We'll have a discussion
0: at that point in time. So having taken a non-traditional route into venture capital, and I say truly non-traditional because people throw around that term for anyone who came from the military, but you can, you can come from the military and go to a business school and go to do that. But like you've been doing this for a while and then you already had your firm and then you decided to, you know, rewrite your thesis and then scale and then do it full time, kick the salary, you know, kick somebody else's salary and then, and then yeah. do it. How do you start building financial knowledge during the time when you, I don't know, did you go to school for finance or economics or how do you, how do you learn this while you're in the military? Cause I, I can kind of relate to this too, cause I took my own time to learn it. But um, it's not part of your day job.
1: Yep. In a weird way, it could have been part of your day job. I mean, as a, as, an, as a squadron commander on deployed task forces, I mean, I had huge budgets. I mean, massive budgets. Now, my job was to not earn a return. My job was to just spend the money, right. not, not save and grow the money. So a little bit of a different aspect of this is where in some regards, I think military people make horrible business people. Because the military is not in the business of making money.
0: No, there's no it's profit. A, You're a budget manager. It's, yeah,
1: its sole job is to spend. Yeah. Um, and but I again, I came from this entrepreneurial family. My grandfather was kind of a, a mentor. He's kind of like a Warren Buffett in the sense that he's a pretty frugal value investor. Mm. And from a very young age, he had us reading stock charts. Uh, I came from a, a family uh, sort of steeped in family enterprise. Uh, And my old man would have family meetings where he would, even as young age, sort of, you know, trust us and and explain the business to us. And I can remember it was like, oh man, it's like fucking deathly boring. And uh, I've integrated that same capability, like that same thought with my own daughters now. Like, so I'm speaking to you now from my office that is in walking distance from my home and my kids have a setup in my office. And they know that they're welcome to come to the office anytime. But if they come to the office, they're going to learn something. So, you know, that lasts for about five minutes before they start watching the iPad. But at least they're, like, going to watch something. I joke with my oldest, who's nine. She's a, she's a huge hockey player. And I say, you know, we're going to buy an NHL team. And I'm going to make enough money that I'm going to buy a pro sports team. Uh, I'm going to buy the Ottawa Senators. I'm manifesting that right now. Uh, and she's going to come in and she's going to be the GM. And so we talk about that and it's a fictitious example or even though the Ottawa Senator should be sold because it has horrible ownership and, and, and it's, uh, it, it'd be a very inexpensive team to acquire. Uh, so I'll, you know, uh, but then we talk about like the business of that and what does that look like and what are salary caps and how does a GM think about paying players and, you know, what are, what are the revenues? How does like we use an example that's, very familiar to her in terms of hockey to make this relatable business case, yeah. uh, even though she's probably not going to be the GM of an NHL team. It just makes it attainable. And, and that was stuff that my, you know, my, my father and my grandfather would do with me. And so I think it speaks to the fact that when I was in Afghanistan, we were also day trading because the time zones were, were perfect because we'd be asleep. Uh, well, we'd come back from like a mission. We'd go hunting at night. We'd come back. The markets would open. Uh, we'd trade in between like mission preps, and we'd set all the automate our trades. We'd go out and do a do an op, and then come in and you know see if we'd been making money. Uh, but we also had disposable cash from being tax free and having allowances and and a little bit more money. And the options were you know go and buy like a pimped out truck or put that money to work. And, and my philosophy, and I think the organization I was a part of, a lot of the guys were very entrepreneurial. So there were a bunch of guys buying businesses. We have guys building climbing gyms, guys buying you know triplexes and sixplexes and getting into the real estate market. I invested sort of my first 50 grand into my buddy's startup, which is now like a $1.5 billion, you know, real estate portfolio that's for the, since 2007, it's been earning me an 8% risk-adjusted return, and it's about as much fun as watching paint dry. But I trust these guys implicitly. They're the they're the experts in their field. They've created an amazing portfolio, and I got in at the ground floor. And as a result of that was open to the mentorship that they provided. And so, you know, they became my sounding boards. When I was raising my fund, I'm like, I want to raise a fund. And they're like, bad idea. Don't do it. Do this, this, this instead. And I was, sometimes I was stubborn and and like, fuck you guys. I'm going to go and do this. I'm going to execute my vision. So, you know, more often than not, they were right. But, you know, you got to learn some of the hard lessons on your own. And so it was really just a learning about money, learning about investing and learning about finance. And I'm a very firm believer that that's not something that can be taught in school. And it's not something that can be taught setting up like dummy training accounts because there's certain emotions that come with the decisions you make. And it's not until you actually feel those emotions and like the sting of making a bad decision. You can't do that unless you've got skin in the game. And so it's just it was just a slow burn series of of learning those lessons from a very early age and now I've again got a thesis I have the right capital partners I have the right access to the deal flow and I'm pretty humbled that you know you say I'm a non-traditional venture capitalist I'm now being sought out by companies that are receiving term sheets from some of the biggest US VCs and they're turning them down because they want to work with me because I'm not a traditional VC. Yeah. And and you know, in some of these discussions I'll start I'll start the call with like, for the record, I'm I'm a special forces guy, I'm not a VC. And I've I've also built a model that sort of sees special operations, mission planning and execution and venture capital is synonymous. I mean if you think about what you and I used to do, it's all about precision application of resources at a specific time and place in a super high risk environment. To be successful, you had to have ultimate downside protection, and you needed contingency plans. And you needed a series of decision support matrices to know the fact that you're getting into the unknown, but you can predict almost like audibles in a football game. Mm -hmm. You know, you got to get to the line of scrimmage and call an audible. And so before I make an investment, I'm planning out those contingencies. I'm planning out those audibles. You know, I've got my reserve chute packed, I've got my alternate d- drop zones. Uh, I've, I've, I've done a lot of speaking at venture events, and I equate a venture investment to a hey-ho jump. And I think there's so much similarity in the mentality, the mindset, the preparation, the planning that goes into deploying capital. It's almost the identical preparation sequence that you would have had to do a hey-ho jump. And it's it's really fascinating. And it briefs well, it sounds kind of cool, it's different and it's attracting interesting deal flow, but it's also attracting investors that are looking for something different. I you know, I'll just kind of toot my own horn a little bit. I bought a mask company in twenty eighteen. Yeah. And people thought people thought I was fucking crazy. They're like, Why are you buying a company that makes masks and respirators? And I said, Because the world is going into a, a situation where everyone will need a mask. I didn't anticipate Uh, a pandemic I thought it was more climate related forest fire related sort of geopolitics of overcrowding in dense urban centers but hey I'll take a pandemic like you know we 10x that company in 12 months and there's no it's not slowing down and so, you know, a lot of people are like, well, how did you know to buy a mask company or oh, you're profiteering off the pandemic? I'm like, I'm not profiteering. I bought the company like a year before the pandemic. But there are certain indicators and warnings that if you look at the problem from a different lens, you can see these indicators and warnings. No different than you know battle procedure for a mission you're you know you're reading your intelligence you're seeing you know what's happening you've got your ISR deployed out there feeding you information it's just a matter of how you use that information and it allows us to kind of hedge bets in certain ways but also even potentially influence some of these in my case some of these companies towards going in certain avenues that the that other people just aren't aware of because they don't either understand what's happening in the problem-solving sort of downrange, or they just kind of lack the foresight on how to build the contingency plan to, you know, take the risk, because yeah. that's all it is. I mean, soft a soft mission is an exercise in risk mitigation, that's all it is.
0: Yeah, I think the two, the two biggest strengths are, one is everyone says, master the basics, but two, special operations is about forecasting and developing contingencies, right.
1: Totally. One of the most powerful lessons I took away from our community, we actually we actually picked up from your old organization. You know, when you get to a point in time in a career where you're kind of at the pinnacle, sometimes a job might come in that seems beneath you, and you're like, "Fuck this, not my job." And and we had we had opportunities and times where you, that that kind of mindset would creep in, and it was with some folks from your old shop that you know framed that in such a way that has been imprinted on me and and it was basically something to the effect of the reason we are as good at what we do is because we don't say that's not my job and even if we get a job that we think is is beneath us or not part maybe part of our mandate we approach it with the same vigor enthusiasm and professionalism as if we're going out to kill bin laden I think ingraining that mindset is not easy, but it's, I think it's the sign of true professionalism. And I, and I use that kind of nowadays as well. Now I can pick and choose the types of ventures I get involved with. I also know that like, as an officer, I was a generalist. And so you know the power for me was where I was able to position myself in an operation to, to influence the fight. It wasn't necessarily trying to get in the gunfight. It might have been on a hill outside where I had comms with aircraft. It might have been back in a talk where I had access to you know strategic assets or QRF, and I could pull the trigger on certain ass- like certain things that had to happen. Sometimes it was in the fight. It all depended on the situation, and I positioned. I position my current business in much in the same way. As much as I would have killed to have just been an NCO, kind of door-kicking number one in the gunfight all the time, I embrace sort of the generalist role now and sort of round out my team with the, with the requis- requisite specialists that we need. And so I've got my core group of generalists now that are able to really validate deal flow. Uh, but when we need to bring in like technical diligence and the right subject matter experts, there's a good lesson in just being real with yourself about where your skills lie and like playing to your strengths as opposed to like trying to be something cooler. Like I would have killed to have been a diver or a sniper, but I'm like, that just wasn't my lot in life, you know. Yeah. But I know how to, I know how to employ snipers. I know where snipers need to go. I know how snipers need to think. I know what effect I need them to deliver for me on an operation. I'm not the guy that's like dialing in the scope and pulling the trigger, but I know how to give them the right strategic guidance to deliver the effect that I need them to deliver for me. So I've used that in my business and in my investment sort of style pretty substantially.
0: Yeah, so as a uh, running a VC entity, you're this node between your capital partners and your invested companies, but also you're running a team as well. You talk about how you deal with these different types of relationships?
1: Well, with the portfolio companies, I get to pick and choose. Mm-hmm. So I very much think about assessment and selection models and analyzing management teams, much like we would have run a selection for a special forces. They don't see that sort of methodology, but I, get, I have the luxury to pick and choose who I'm investing in. And then the relationship with them is, you know, generally I don't want to be involved with companies that I can't be actively engaged with. I'm not a very passive investor and my thesis is all sort of tied to my ability to influence that specific company. Hmm. So I know I'm going to get my hands dirty and and get involved, which changes sort of the day-to-day interactions with the company. If I'm leading an investment round, I'll like to take a board seat. Uh, so I'll have a little bit more sort of formal governance over the decision making of the company, which lends a little bit more to a strategic decision making mindset. Whereas I'll be tactically involved in a day to day, but when it comes time to like actually, you know, managing strategic decisions and resource allocation, that's kind of usually done at the board at the board seat. With the team, most of the folks on my team uh, come from the community, so you know we've got some really skilled guys. That are technical experts, they're end user experts in sort of the innovation side of the house, and you know we've even got operators that have gone on to do their CFAs and are cutting their teeth on the financial analysis side of the house. Uh, they're they're easy to run with because it's it's like building a, a six man six-person debt or team or whatever you call it. That one's a little bit more intuitive. Uh, And then on the investor side of the house, it's a little bit like managing a relationship with your superiors. So if you equate it it to kind of a chain of command, your investors are your silent partners, but they're really your client. So you have to kind of appease them. Uh, And those relationships will change based on sort of the characteristic and the way that they want to be informed. Some are more uh, want more like minute to minute updates. Others are pretty passive. So I'm a big fan of being a, a an information push, over inform, uh, over communicate to the point that they'll just say, quit bugging me, leave me alone. And I'm like, great. So I, I sort of over communicate and default to pushing information. With my main capital partners, it's a much more of a, almost like a daily check-in i mean we're building something together my current partner is a a two billion dollar asset manager so you know they have a a gravitas to their credibility and experience in the market and and i know that they're way smarter than me so with them i'm on like pull i'm I'm trying to pull information from them mostly for my own learning and to cut my teeth in my own sort of the business of being an investor, not just the guy trying to source deal flow and and assess companies that to me, that's the easy part
0: to focus in a little more on the uh, portfolio company relationship. I think I read somewhere that you, you invest in kind of like dual purpose companies, ones that take either military technological application and scale them or find different uses. Um, You know, how do you, how do you vet, how do you interact with these teams? I guess uh, more tactically.
1: Yeah, uh, great question. They're starting to find me, which I think is pretty cool. I still maintain uh, a pretty high security clearance. My social network is still tied to just, I'd say, national security, special forces, and intelligence end users. So even without them talking about what they're doing in sort of day-to-day, I've got my finger on the pulse for what's happening in the world across sort of predominantly the US and Canada, but extends into Britain. Uh, Understanding what these national security end users are working on, what keeps them up at night, and where there's gaps in an ability for technology to support their missions. One of the downfalls that any government has is its ability to spend efficiently. And so private capital can move with significant agility, and we can far outpace governments in terms of actually delivering a solution to these folks that are downrange trying to protect our national security uh, infrastructure. That coupled with access to some of the innovation that's happening in these compartmented or classified programs and the relationships that I have with people that are still in those programs who know what I'm doing and know how quickly I can move, but also appreciate the value add that I bring even though I'm, I'm new and I'm small uh, in comparison with the other big funds, uh, I intuitively know exactly what their problem is. And I intuitively know how to integrate whatever it is that they're doing, whether it's a piece of hardware, software. Or, like I will intuitively know how the end user wants that to be integrated as a capability to deliver an effect. Most of the companies are coming out of the U.S. national security environment. And I'm attractive to them because I open a market to them in Canada, which they are unable to open. So I'm giving them a new geographic market. I'm giving them a new federal government to sell into if we're doing sort of the dual use technologies. And I have access to their counterparts in the Canadian ecosystem. And so I'm seeing things in the US. You know, I'm privileged and I'm seeing things early that many other funds won't have access to. Uh, which I think is one of the big value propositions. And then ultimately the evaluation of a company comes down to management and do I want to work with the people building the company? Can I add value? So is there a lever that I can pull to add strategic value to that company? And uh, is what they're developing a capability? And that to me is where companies go wrong because they're trying to make a widget and it could be the most amazing amazing widget, but if it doesn't fit into a force employment concept, it's not gonna work. And so it has to be able to integrate with other systems.
0: Kind of more like more a of Segway.
1: Segway's a great example. Take Segway and compare it to like uh, Bird or some of these other micro-mobility companies. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like TiVo yeah. back in the day. Yeah. Like it, they're, They weren't delivering an effect, they were delivering an over-engineered piece of hardware. Like, when you hire an Uber, you don't give a shit the kind of car that picks you up. You just want something with four wheels that doesn't smell too bad to arrive at your doorstep and take you somewhere. So the hardware, it's all about sort of the delivery of of that effect. And I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek. But there's similar applications for the companies that are building these types of capabilities. I just did a I just invested this is all all open source. There's a press release that just came out. In October, I invested in a company called Strider Technologies. This is a US company based out of DC in Salt Lake City, run by two really impressive brothers. And they have built a technology that essentially like amalgamates advertising technology with national security intelligence tradecraft. And what these guys are able to do is identify and illuminate the risk profiles of Chinese talent programs that have recruited and embedded people into some of the America's biggest companies with the exclusive intent of stealing IP. It's a $600 billion a year problem in the U.S., the FBI opens a criminal, 10 criminal investigations a day into this type of problem. And in the first year of this company sort of really firing on all cylinders, they're sort of adding the most exclusive Fortune 100 type companies that you can think of to their repertoire. And it's an incredibly topical problem, but it's like, how did you know that the Chinese and nation state actors are penetrating our companies? I'm like, dude, this isn't a new problem. We've been dealing with this for ages we're just now kind of waking up to it and now it's an issue it's i mean it's a massive issue in
0: canada well i think that's and i'm pretty sure ben and i might have sat in on a venture capital class that said make a 10 page powerpoint page one is it's the blank for blank and keep it simple and it sounds like what you discuss is more nuanced and that you, you're able to apply your own insights to to actually uncover some value where someone who's given you five minutes out of their day w- wouldn't, wouldn't even begin to understand.
1: Well, I, I, yeah, I think you're right. And I'm not saying I, like, I'll intuitively know within five minutes if I'm going to make an investment. One of my former commanders had a great saying. It's, uh, I'm not always right, but I'm never in doubt. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, I, I'm, I'm always 100% confident that I'm doing the right thing but I might be wrong.
0: (laughs) Okay. um, Did he say that about you or that was that one of his sayings?
1: Probably. Oh, probably. I don't know. Uh, no, that was just one of his sayings, but again, it resonated with, um, it resonated with me because it's just like, trust your gut in the venture investing. We have a period of diligence that we're going to uncover the skeletons. If they're skeletons, we're going to be able to determine whether or not, we want to actually follow through with the investment. But generally more often than not within 5 minutes I know if I'm going to if I'm going to pull the trigger on it. I've walked away from a bunch of deals and sometimes the deals you walk away from are the best investment you ever make. There's just that intuitive sense that this company gets the problem they're trying to solve. And if there's risk to generally the walking away it's usually on the management side as to you know, is this the right team to actually execute? Because at the end of the day, you're backing people. The only thing that's certain in the venture space is, one, the financials are wrong, and two, they're going to have to pivot their tech to actually find their niche. And so it's that agility and inflexibility that I think is often people's Achilles heel. They get so tunnel visioned in on their baby that they don't see the forest through the trees or understand the need to pivot to do what your customers or the market needs you to do. And that comes down to a personality leadership trait. Whereas all guys like you and I would have done is pivot (laughs) because we know that it's wrong. The intelligence is wrong. The Air Force dropped us in the wrong spot. My parachute didn't open and I'm landing in the wrong spot. Everything that we ever dealt with was wrong. And we would have to you know, adjust, formulate a new plan, and continue to execute that mission. And I like to align with the type of people that showcase that type of characteristic.
0: Yeah, I know people probably bring up Shark Tank to you whenever you discuss this kind of stuff, but it was uh, was interesting to me to find out that they bring out this whiz-bang thing on TV and it looks great, they have a great presentation, and even when they get uh, the TV version of the investment, right, the shark um, shakes, shakes their hand and gives them an offer, the clear majority of those don't go through. They don't pass diligence.
1: So Totally. My mask company was on Dragon's Den, which is the Canadian variant of Shark Tank. And they, they ended up getting a deal, and it fell apart in due diligence.
0: It was, was that before, it was that or, before or after the, you?
1: That was before. But, I mean, it was interesting because it set a valuation. It's kind of an interesting show. I watch those shows, but, again, they're TV shows about business. Right. It's not it's not a business show. Right. It's a television yeah. show. But it's Yeah, it's entertaining. It's <laughs> just seeing people go in there woefully unprepared and just get <laughs> torn apart.
0: Hey everyone, Matt here again with a little extra support segment. I wanted to talk about Patreon here. Personally, I think Patreon is a win-win for content creators and listeners. Uh, On the content creator side, it's a shift from one-off transactional to accretive recurring revenues, think Netflix. On the listener side, it's a chance to get more out of the shows that you already like, starting at an incredibly reasonable price. Ben and I both use Patreon, so we're speaking from experience. If you visit us at patreon.com slash what, you'll see a few subscription tiers. So starting at just $1 per episode, you'll get free access to our monthly bonus episodes. We posted our first one in December with a little behind the scenes for the show from Ben and me. It's about 40 minutes. For $2 and up, you'll get to direct some content. That's right. We're going to be polling for some ideas for quarterly bonus episodes that we're going to release to the public. And we're going to have you vote on the topics for $5 and up. We're going to send you one of our new t-shirts just for signing up uh, quick note that each tier gets whatever the lower tier gets to anyway, head on over to patreoncom slash. Thank you. Now what to check it out or find the link on our website. Thanks. And let's get back to the show. I wanted to talk to, uh, if we have a few more minutes, you yeah, you, for sure. you mentioned that you bring your kids into the office and they always learn something. We've had some other guests on and something that I think is really impactful is transition on your family. And I know your kids are still pretty young when you transition, but they're still there. Um, yep. How did life change for you? Was there extra struggle there from now not traveling as much or, or I'm sure you appreciate all the quality time now, but how was the adjustment?
1: It was hard. It was really hard. And I'll get a bit vulnerable because I know in a lot of the discussions I have with, with folks that are leaving, it's like they might look at things and be like, oh, well, I'm struggling and you're not. I'm like, man, the struggle is real. Transitioning is is hard. I drank way too much. Part of my injury that I had was a really significant head injury. And so when you and I met in that first year, I was like lubricated the entire time on booze. I was telling myself and selling myself a fictitious story that was complete horseshit. I was convincing myself that things were great. I was an asshole at home. I was having a really difficult time. And in the middle of that, added to that, my wife started deploying a lot. So we had like a really interesting role reversal where I I went from being the guy that was always deploying to her always deploying. And I was kind of left alone with the kids. It was super hard because I was undergoing a bunch of surgeries at the time. So I had five surgeries to fix my back and my hips. I had a head injury that I wasn't dealing with properly. I was, you know, like lubricating with booze and not fixing the issues, thinking I was doing an okay job, like selling myself this like false bill of goods that, yeah, you're doing fine. Everything's good. And it wasn't, I wasn't super present. I wasn't really engaged. And it wasn't really until this year, I'd say with the pandemic has actually been again, a, a really positive experience because it's just kind of forced this entire reset stopped the, the traveling for both me and my wife. So we've actually, you know, I'm now four years out of the military and I'd say this is the first year that's actually seemed kind of like normal. You know, to people listening that are transitioning, it's fucking hard. And all of a sudden lacking this purpose, external to your family, and not being a part of a tight knit community it's kind of lonely it's taken me a while to kind of actually like admit that out loud and a lot of the time because a, a bunch of my buddies are going through the same process and you know some i think respond faster and i think if you have issues that might be lingering the military runs on booze so i mean half of like the culture is just drinking and partying which isn't super healthy and now we're starting to see the catching up of traumatic brain injuries. And it's it's a pretty bad combination. So I'm I'm trying to help guys understand the fact that like there's a bunch of other factors and not just physically having a different job that are going to weigh on sort of the different aspects of dealing with transition. Mm-hmm. Um, and be vulnerable with it. Like I've found opening up and talking and being vulnerable is a really big source of strength. Whereas like in the former life, you don't show up to work and like talk about your feelings. That's not something you do. So it's a little bit almost more of like an empathy and a compassion that I've kind of opened up. And I think it wasn't until I did that, that things started to be sort of positively positive transition. Yeah, I was giving myself a, a bullshit narrative about what life is like. And in the year that you and I met, it was that was kind of at like its pinnacle as well because I didn't know what I was doing. I was just trying to stay afloat.
0: (laughs) It's like forfeiture of identity, forfeiture of community, forfeiture of purpose all at the same time and then trying to tell yourself everything's okay, everything's fine instead of taking it head on.
1: And I think the biggest misconception, and it's hard, is accepting the fact that that, that's not my identity. You know what I mean? It's just something I did. Like I, It was a fucking job I had. And trying to at least think about it as like something different, like, oh, it's my calling. It's in my DNA. I was meant to do this. It's, I think that's horseshit. It's a job you did. And I'm buddies with a lot of NHL players. And it's a very similar transition story to guys that are leaving pro hockey. They're leaving with head injuries. They're leaving sort of the the, the camaraderie of the locker room life on the road playing a fast paced high tempo game and culture and then all of a sudden it's like well now what for my whole life i've been a hockey player and now i'm what, a business guy like what does that mean and and coming to terms with the fact that maybe that's not your identity yeah you know what i mean it's hard to do but it's uh, it was sort of critical, I think, in sort of helping me transition.
0: Yeah, we have a uh, one of our guests, Nate Boyer. After he left Special Forces active duty, he went to play football at Texas, and then he got drafted by the Seahawks. And now he's into a bunch of stuff, film, writing, directing, acting, whatever. And he has since started this foundation called Merging Vets and Players. And that's exactly what they do, uh, is they share yeah. in that experience. And then next month, I think, we're going to try to get on uh a woman named karen gallagher who she's a phd out of arizona state and she studies the same thing so it's interesting that you brought up uh, your buddies that play hockey too because uh, we talk about that a lot
1: yeah uh, and one of the and one of the things so wh- one of my buddies he was a 20-year player in the league uh pretty well-known guy uh, he got me really into dirt biking I I bought his bike. He's a big sort of enduro enthusiast. I bought his KTM 300 two-stroke, which I'm in love with, and we call it throttle therapy. And we get guys together, and we go and we ride, and we ride really hard. And I'm a shitty dirt biker. But what I love about it is it's like I have no ego about it. I'm a 42-year-old man learning to dirt bike. I can't take spills cause I'll break myself. Uh, I'm already kind of broken. So I'm very methodical in everything I do. I'm an absolute novice and I just want to learn a new skill. And I found that to be super helpful. We came out of an environment that was like super alpha, super ego, like go. And now it's like, pff, I'm a newbie and it's so fun being a newbie at stuff yeah. and just Pick your hobby and actually have it like as a legit hobby. You know, it's not tied to your work. It's not, there's zero money trying to get out of it. There's nothing. It's just an absolute hobby. And it's kind of replaced a bit of that camaraderie. We go riding with a bunch of guys. You know, you ride hard, you break things, you have a laugh, you get a flat tire, you change it, you're cursing, you get back, you have a beer a good day.
0: Yeah. I think we've seen a little bit of that with just producing this show, something that Ben and I have both kind of stepped out of our expertise into doing.
1: And it's just a matter of doing it and showing up. And like every yeah. single time you go out, it's going to be a little bit better or you're going to learn something. Oh,
0: yeah. Or like today, today's good. audio. Uh, <laughs>
1: today's audio,
0: for <laughs> sure. Jumping through. But it's, yeah.
1: I think it's incredibly, it's incredibly refreshing to do something where it doesn't matter if, it's, if you suck, and just enjoy the process. Whether I'm ever a good dirt biker or not, I could care less. It's about just getting out and riding dirt bike and having a few laughs, and maybe today I get up that hill, and maybe today I, I, I don't know, any day I don't break something, I, it's a good day i break my bike all the time because i suck but like any day i don't break something on my body i'm, I'm happy so, so before
0: yeah. we before we let you go we just have to ask our one final question for the show that we ask everybody but after we've after we've gone through all these topics and discussed everything who do you think you are today if you never served
1: oh that's an interesting question uh I've started reframing my own thought process, and I, I like the way you a- asked the question of who are you today, not what would you be doing today if you never served. Um, I'm not even sure how to answer that. I, I would probably be, overall, probably a little happier.
0: Hmm.
1: but But a person who is less enriched by experience and understanding how to actually persevere through hardship i think in some regards i would be a person who is a little bit naive to the way the real world works and i'm not sure if that would be a good thing or a bad thing in some regards serving and having some of the experiences we had is a little bit like the matrix in like i should have taken the blue pill where ignorance is bliss. Mm. Uh, but we've, we've seen how the world works in some regards that has shaped and formed us. And so I think to answer your question, having never served, I would be a, a person who lacks insight. I would have significant more naivety about humankind, the ways of the world, almost like visceral Neanderthal sort of aspects of what makes humans humans. And I'm in some days, I think that would be a blessing, and some days I'm glad that I understand.
0: Does that answer your question? Yeah, that's perfect. First answer like that that we've heard.
1: Yeah, I'm thinking more about it. I'm sure I'm going to hop in my car when I get out of here, and it's like, it'll hit me. I'll be like, ah, damn, I should have said this. (laughs) But I think. No, I think uh, yeah, I think that I think I'm happy with that And is. we
0: got in our uh, required movie reference uh, just under the wire for the episode. Oh, yes,
1: yeah, <laughs> yes,
0: <laughs> amazing, yeah. <laughs> love it. All right, uh, well, it was great to catch up, man, and uh, we re- yeah, we really right. appreciate you being on. Hopefully, I don't have to wait another few years to see you again, and we can uh, be in touch, especially when the pandemic is finally over. Awesome. All right, brother. Thanks, guys. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Thank You Now What, a podcast about life after service. Be on the lookout for Glenn finding the next best thing and guiding private capital to fuel growth across industries. As always, thanks for listening to us. Please subscribe, rate, review, follow, and join us next time on Thank You Now What.